Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm your host, Rob Hopkins, and I'm so thrilled you could join me here today for this podcast. If it's your first time here, you're most welcome. If you like what you hear, I'll just mention that if you were to subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash from what if to what next, you would not only receive each episode on the day it's released, but also other bonuses and treats besides. Do give it a thought. Today's episode is one I've been looking forward to for ages. There are estimated by the United Nations to be 370 million indigenous people in 70 countries around the world, ranging from the Arctic to the South Pacific. The UN defines indigenous people as being descendants of those who inhabited a country or a geographical region at the time when people of different cultures or ethnic origins arrived. They are the holders of languages, knowledge and beliefs that relate very specifically to place, as well as being the holders of practices for the sustainable management of those ecosystems. Yet many of them still live with the effects of colonisation and oppression which persist to this day, being more likely to experience poverty, prisons, poor health and marginalisation. In his book Sand Talk, Tyson Yunkaporta wrote, The war between good and evil is in reality an imposition of stupidity and simplicity over wisdom and complexity. So our aim today is with two amazing guests to explore how that wisdom and complexity might be understood and more widely embodied. Our question, therefore, today is what if indigenous wisdom could save the world? I'm so fortunate today to be joined by two amazing guests. Sherry Mitchell, whose tribal name is Wena Hamu Kwaset, was born and raised on Penobscot Indian Reservation. She received her Juris Doctorate and Certificate in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy from the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. She's an alumna of the American Indian Ambassador Programme and the Udall Native American Congressional Internship Programme. Sherry also received the Mahani Dunn International Human Rights Humanitarian Award for research into human rights violations against indigenous peoples. She was a long-term advisor to the American Indian Institute's Healing the Future program and currently serves as an advisor to the Indigenous Elders and Medicine Peoples Council of North and South America. She's a founding director of the Land Peace Foundation, an organization dedicated to the global protection of indigenous rights and the preservation of the indigenous way of life. Prior to forming the Land Peace Foundation, she served as a law clerk to the solicitor of the United States Department of Interior, as an associate with Fredericks, Hebels and Morgan Law Firm, a civil rights educator for the Maine Attorney General's Office and the staff attorney for the Native American Unit of Pine Tree Legal. She's the author of the award-winning book Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. And Tyson Yunkaporta is an academic, an arts critic and a researcher who belongs to the Apalech clan in far northern Queensland in Australia. He carves traditional weapons and tools and also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. His recent book is Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Welcome both. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us, Rob. Wow, that, Sherry, that's a hell of a CV you got there. I'm... Uh way out of my pay grade here. (laughs) (laughs) I was still eating roadkill a few years ago. (laughs) I think think we still do here, so it's okay. Great at home. Yeah. Fabulous. So I'd like to start with the exercise that we always start this podcast with. And I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to make yourselves comfortable. 
And I'd like you to imagine that you're travelling forward in time through the 10 years between now and 2030. It was a time that, although it didn't seem very promising in 2020, built and built in cascades of positive change, driven by activism, powerful movements and rapid shifts in consciousness. It was a remarkable time to be alive. So much shifted and changed and so much that felt impossible in 2020 became commonplace by 2030. As you step out into that 2030 of your imagining, a 2030 that's the result of everything that could possibly have been done being done, not a utopia but a world very different, I'd like to invite you to share it with all your senses. What does it look like, feel like, sound like, smell like? A world that's fairer, more equal, more just, zero carbon, but also one that is embraced in policymaking, in economics, in education, in city planning, in law and across society, indigenous wisdom and an embrace of indigenous cultures and thinking. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk around that future. What do you see? How is it? Maybe Sherry, would you like to start? Sure. This is a big, a big question. I've been thinking about this quite a lot. I think that the foundation that I envisioned was based on two philosophies that come from our way of life, what we call that is a way of life that recognizes our place within creation, not above it. One of the core principles or core values of that way of life is what we call Pasilda and Dilnabamuk, and it's a recognition that we are related to all other living beings uh, on the earth and beyond, and that um, we have a kinship with all of creation and uh, a recognition that we can learn from and benefit from the longevity of the trees that we can you know benefit from the longevity of the stones and and what stories they carry within them so kind of an indigenous uh, scientist right indigenous um, geologist that, that understanding that that comes from a long relationship, millennia long relationship. That would be the first thing would be that people would have a greater understanding of that connectivity to the rest of life. would be operating in accordance with two principles that go hand in hand and are connected. All of this is is connected into a larger fabric of, of being. And so we have these two principles, Mama Bisu and Alabisu. Mama Bizu is a question that you ask to somebody, an individual. It means essentially, do you have enough? Do you have what you need to live your life with a sense of dignity, safety, sense of belonging? Do you have enough love? Do you have enough medicine? Do you have enough shelter? Do you have all of the things that you need so that your spirit can be at rest? So that what you carry within you, whatever dream it is that you carry within you to share the world can rise up and be offered to the world. So people's creative intelligence is able to rise up and they're able to bring forward the gifts that they carry uh, in a way that is unobstructed by judgments that are based on things like commerce. But Mama Bizu is always balanced with Alabizu because you can't have Mama Bizu, you can't have enough if Alabizu is not true. And Alabizu is, does everyone have enough? Does everyone have enough to live their lives with a sense of dignity? Because there's a recognition that we can never be okay unless everyone is okay. And so having that rising up within the society, a recognition that I can't be okay as an individual by hoarding all the stuff 
that I can only be okay if everyone else is okay and has this ability to live their lives with a sense of dignity. And that when everybody's in that place and what they carry within them rises up, then we all will be in a better place because people are born for the time that they're living in with specific gifts that they carry. We would be moving toward a greater sense of awareness of the benefits of communal living and recognize that our humanoid species did not survive by living individually, but by living communally and cooperatively and collaboratively. And we would see that across the board that we would not be living in an exchange economy, that we would be living in a maternal economy, a mother love economy that was based on principles of Mama Bisu and Ella Bisu. People are able to have what they need and then whatever they have in excess is given to others so that everybody has enough, that we were um, moving away from the, uh, the hoarding and the exploitation and extortion that's connected to the current capitalist system. In regard to laws, we would recognize that it's not only necessary to pass a law to prevent unwelcome or unjust, inequitable behaviors from arising, but it's also necessary to um, have that go hand in hand, that those who are responsible for breaches of that law really need to have work done with them that returns them to a state of, of greater harmony, that um, the Navajo have this word, hojan, that when I was working for one of the justices from the Navajo Nation Superior Court, there's a recognition that the person in and of themselves is whole in their being. And when they're acting in ways that are harmful to themselves or to others, it's because they've lost their hojan, they've lost their sense of balance, their sense of harmony. And there's a restorative justice aspect to that. Right now, we don't have a great deal of restorative justice within the legal system, certainly not within the criminal justice system, but in our legal system in general, because even those who are committing, I don't know if the right word is crimes uh, in, in regard to the legal terminology, considering that I'm an attorney, I should know that. But in regard to a violation against life, that there needs to be a shifting of the hearts and the minds of those individuals and a, a return back to a sense of, of Hojan. And I could go on for a whole day, Rob. So you tell me. What you <laughs> well, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That was a uh, rich, a rich uh, feast indeed. Um, Tyson. Oh, well, my goodness. It was, um, it was very difficult to envision the world that you're talking about. Um, particularly within 10 years. There's a couple of ways that could happen. <sighs> uh, look, in the end, you know, you have to choose. You can, have, um, you can have the vision that you're talking about or you can have civilization. And that's it. Because it's not possible to have a civilization and uh, the vision that you're talking about, particularly um, an industrial civilization and particularly um, civilizations based on that. It's only about a century year old, this, this system, this idea of nations, like great big nation states. It simply isn't possible. It's not possible to have these communication devices that we're using right now that depend on rare earth metals. I mean, they're called rare for a reason, by the way. 
but the extraction of those is, is quite horrendous so just as, as with everything else but the refining of those metals is even worse it produces radioactive waste uh, which all needs to be stored china can't carry that load for the world anymore so they're cutting back production and um so now we're we're finding that the rare earth metal mines and refineries are all being opened up in australia on aboriginal land and now that the world's entering a global sort of 10-year depression you know australia is going to have to dig its way out of that the same way it dug its way out of the global financial crisis by increasing ore production etc and uh so we're going to find that um it's going to be increased by a factor of 10 or 100 even just the predation on aboriginal lands and communities in australia and this is always accompanied with very harsh you know interventions that often include uh, military coming into remote aboriginal communities very fascist policies, limited modified curriculums being introduced into the schools, lots of surveillance, you know, all under this sort of neoliberal rubric of, you know, training people up for jobs that don't exist, particularly in remote areas, which is completely ridiculous. It's an absolute nightmare in Aboriginal Australia. It's um, certainly not an easy place to be and it's not going to get any easier. Look, there are lots of lovely policies in place now and you know, reconciliation's a thing. Everybody wants to do the black and white handshake, looking at uh, trying to get a voice to parliament and all this sort of thing. But in the end, you know, half the people in our communities, they wouldn't want to give up football and Facebook anyway. <laughs> Basically, it is not possible to sustain this this civilization for much longer. It's It's certainly not possible to sustain it for another decade without going... I mean, we're probably past the tipping point now, I'd say. There's more than just carbon going on. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the biggest species extinction in forever. There, there isn't a, you know, getting to 2030 and everything's fine. However, there's one slim chance, and that's if there's a, a massive solar flare and an electromagnetic pulse from the sun that wipes out all of this tech, puts everybody back a few hundred years. And then I guess, I don't know, if that happened next year, then maybe within about eight or nine years, all the sort of bandits and uh, no good people will have made themselves into jerky over tire fires or something like that and wiped each other out. And then then you'd probably see some uh, real human societies emerge again that were based on bioregions that are interdependent and... Um, with uh, languages and cultures and laws being shaped uh, by each bioregion in those particular landscapes and some meaningful trade. And hopefully there'd be a few cautionary tales that would be handed down for quite a long time to, to stop us from going back to that again. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, that's, that's where I'm at at the moment. I was talking to David Suzuki recently and, um, and he was kind of, he was there <laughs> as well. He said, it's, it's finished. Um, and I guess when David Suzuki says it's finished, you've got to move that uh, minute hand a bit closer to midnight on the doomsday clock there, eh? Indeed. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that. But look, I mean, we could probably kick the can down the road uh, for a few more decades with some sort of massive, massive changes uh, and revolutions. Um, and I think, I mean, I'll get to this later but the probably the the main problem in the world is um is that land is capital and i think two-thirds of all the capital on the planet is land that means that people have to be removed from the landscape 
And we have a special ecological niche there with a custodial species. So most of us can't have access to that land because that's there for a very small elite minority who leverage that as um, for debt. And then, you know, the entire global financial system is built on that. And I think as long as you've got land as capital, then it's, it's not really going to be possible for us to return to any kinds of sustainability. But look, in disasters, uh, you find that, that we just get back to business. Our behaviors, you know, as an organism, our behaviors for being together and being on the land and caring for the land are just patterned within us, like the migration routes of whales and birds, you know, these are patterned in us. And whenever there's a disaster, this emerges again. A disaster being a temporary disruption to um, the control of the state and the marketplace. And you find that, you know, informal economies emerge locally. And these are exactly what Sherry was talking about with these sharing economies and people looking after each other. I mean, it sounds like a grim picture I'm painting, but massive calamitous disasters would probably be the best thing that could happen for us. And we would see um, uh, all of these um, wonderful things emerging again. Mm. So the focus of this podcast is on imagination and on the premise that in 2020 we're experiencing in the global north as the result of decades, centuries even, of the suppression of imagination and arguing that we need to really focus on rebuilding the conditions within which the imagination can flourish as we need to be able to imagine a completely different future before we can build it and that imaginative capacity is in decline at the worst possible time. I wonder how that might resonate or not with your experience as folks from Indigenous communities and what your culture's teachings might tell us about imagination, why it matters, and how we might rebuild our collective imagination. Um, Tyson? Mm, um, I mean, we don't construct, individually construct worlds, you know, in our imagination. You know, the imagination, it's a part of your awareness and it's like a way of sensing that's kind of not in linear time or in the present moment, but there's present future. There is, um, you know, you've got the Sky Camp world there as well. So you have the access to that sort of dreaming, you know, capacity. And so your imagination, it's, it's still about perceiving what is, what exists and was and will be and all those sorts of things. It's sort of not about putting together ideal scenarios or fabulous worlds or anything like that. It is, it's, it's looking at the entire pattern of creation and everything that you can see in that and following that pattern and seeing where it is and how you fit within it. Because that's our entire landscape, you know, spiritual and physical. And um, it's a sentient landscape that's observing itself. So we can't really project. <laughs> yeah sort of made up stories onto that. We're finding the stories that are and that do exist and those patterns of creation and spirit that we can follow in that way. So I think well, that's, uh, that's my unimaginative view of imagination, I guess. <laughs> Sherry might have a better one. Thank you. Uh, Sherry? Thank you for the question and um, thank you for all that you've shared, Tyson. I went right into imagination realm when I was thinking about the first question that was posed as somebody who works on climate change and a lot of justice issues, I certainly could have gone into the state of being as it is and what the likely outcomes would be on the current trajectory. But I think that one of the things that is a saving grace for us really within my region, my territory, is a very strong oral tradition. 
we have an oral tradition that is based on an understanding that what we speak into being forms the reality that we're creating. And so recognizing that there is an element of the dream in that, but also that there's incredible wisdom in that in regard to quantum physics and aspects that are still being formulated and understood by the mass consciousness, such as our powers and abilities to co-create recognition that vibration and frequency create sound. So within our storytelling tradition, there's an understanding that as we're speaking and we're emoting with the stories that we're telling, we're actually creating a situation where the mirror neurons in the brain of the person who is receiving that story activate in such a way that they are having the same type of experience within their bodies that they would have had had they actually witnessed this story unfolding before their eyes in real time. Uh, And so when I think about that, and I think about stories like our story of the first illness, which is a story that essentially tells us in a nutshell that human beings walked away from the path of life and uh, began to forget who they were in relation to the rest of creation, that their elders, their relatives in the natural world had to go into council and decide what are we going to do about these younger beings, our younger relatives, the humans, because they're misbehaving and they're causing harm to other species and to Mother Earth. And the animals decided that they had to give them illness in order to bring them back. And, you know, this story is a story that my grandmother's great-grandmother's great-grandmother told and was told to me by my grandmother. And here we are living in a scenario where there's a global pandemic as a result of the animals giving human beings illness. We're living in the reality of what seemed like a mythological ancient story, but there's there's elements of truth woven into that. There's another story that relates to a friend of mine who uh, we were talking about repatriation. Repatriation is when we are able to go and to collect the remains of our ancestors that are held in these horrific museum displays or scholarly displays and bring them home and give them proper burial. And there's a whole ceremony around that that involves collecting them in a ceremonial way, carrying them home in a ceremonial way, never leaving them alone until they've been properly buried and returned to the earth with their relatives. And one of those instances, a young girl was staying up singing with one of the elders that had been brought home, an ancestor that had been brought home. And he kept repeating a phrase to her all night. She kept hearing it all night and she didn't quite know what it meant. So the language was old. So they went to the oldest language keeper in their community. She got this far off look in her eye when she asked them, where did you hear that? And they told her and she burst into tears and She told them, he's telling you, I dreamed you into the future. I dreamed you into being. And so when we think about the fact that our ancestors dreamed us into being, that gives us the responsibility, clearly hands us the responsibility of dreaming our future generations into being and not just their existence, right? It's not enough for us to dream them into being so that they can actually exist. We have to also dream a world into being that they can continue to exist and to uh, you know, thrive in. And so when I think about the combination of all those things, the wisdom within our oral tradition, the storytelling tradition, um, there's elements of the dream and all of that that I think benefit us in being able to get to this place of collectively 
dreaming and breathing life into a collective vision that is in alignment with us being able to sustain life into the future. Oh, what a beautiful story. Thank you. That quite gave me goosebumps. When we talk about indigenous wisdom and referring to many, many distinctly different cultures in hugely varied settings with a diversity of faiths and cultures and beliefs, what do they have in common? What could we say runs through them all that we might capture as being uh, indigenous wisdom? Sherry? Well, from my perspective, I think that the core that runs through Indigenous wisdom is sense of awareness and a sense of connectivity to the lands where they live, the lands that they live in relationship with. So there's this, this core relationship that exists with the land of one's birth and understanding of that connection. And when you dive deeper into that, you know, it really, it really helps you to understand that the terminology motherland and mother tongue so that there's been such a long relationship with the land that the land actually understands the language of those people and those people understand the language of that land and communicate with one another. And so I think that, you know, a simple answer to that is connectivity to the land and awareness of the language of the land and a receptiveness to the lessons that that land can teach them. Thank you. Tyson? Well, for me, and I can, I can, I heard it earlier in um, what Sherry was saying as well. It's about that centrality of the mother. So you can often see that in how we talk about the land as well. But it's having a society that's that's set up so the mother is the center of things, and that's the central relationship, that central kinship pair as mother child. And all other relationships feed into and come out of that. There has to be that absolute respect and that everything is built around that relation. And I think that's the key thing. I don't know of any civilization in history that has done that. As far as I can see, every civilization has had to um, alienate and suppress the mother and marginalize the mother and make things very difficult for her just in order to function in order to be in that extractive relation to the land then you have to have that wrong relation for women there's a direct correlation between a man's relationship with the woman be it mother or partner or daughter or anything else and the way he interacts with his land the way you treat the land is usually the way you treat um, women and particularly mothers this Anglosphere, which is all over the world now, it's one that's quite hostile to, to women, but particularly hostile to mothers. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very difficult society to live in you know, for a mother and even for the people who are trying to support that mother as well. That's the main thing. And I think if you get that right, uh, everything else really does just fall back into place because your relation with the land changes. And once that changes, then uh, everything changes. Thank you. And Tyson, you wrote in Sand Talk, uh, we experience time in a very different way from people immersed in flat schedules and storyless surfaces. Can you say a little bit more about that experience of time and maybe how a wider understanding or embodiment of that understanding of time could better enable us to more skillfully build a better world? Yeah, well, um, uh, civilization is, um, it's all about creating enclosures 
you look at the foundational mythologies of these civilizations, you'll, you'll see this, uh, keep coming back to that image of a snake eating its tail. And, you know, that serpent is a really important creation figure all around the world for the uh, original cultures coming out of the land. That serpent is important. Now, to have a symbol that you're calling infinity and having that snake eating its tail and calling that infinity is, it's a curse. It's a big curse. Civilization does this thing. It, it creates enclosures. It, it tries to create these uh, closed systems. But closed systems don't exist. You know, in that Western idea, or not Western, but, um, you know, civilized idea, you can't call all this science Western because, you know, it's from all around the world. Uh, the Anglosphere, English-speaking world, is the repository for all that stolen knowledge. But, um, yeah, so I shouldn't call it Western knowledge. But basically this uh, industrial idea, but it's this civilized idea of the arrow of time comes out of that, uh, that first law of thermodynamics where entropy increases over time uh, in a closed system. The only problem with that model is that we don't live in a closed system and that actually um, closed systems are impossible. They can't even really create a, a proper closed system in a laboratory environment. It isn't possible because, you know, we live in a big, vast, complex, dynamic, self-organizing, infinitely overlapping systems that are in a constant state of exchange and flux with each other. And, you know, energy and things are not destroyed. Nothing's destroyed. You know, these, it's, these are enclosed loops. Everything gets uh, recycled back around. Did I say first law of thermodynamics before? I, I, th I think I meant the second law. Yeah, the second law of thermodynamics is the closed systems. But actually the first law, which is a bit more like the, the law of first peoples, which is nice. So it's nice that it's called first law. That's more about the idea of the open systems that are exchanging energy and matter. And that's probably a more realistic version of, of time uh, than that kind of illusory you know, arrow of time where everything must be enclosed and everything must be breaking down while simultaneously sitting on an illusion of infinite growth uh, from finite resources. So, yeah, you're, the way you see time is, is, uh, is really important uh, for your role as a custodial species too. And Sherry, you've spoken beautifully about how the movements working to build a more just, equal, sustainable future need to not replicate the need to conquer, i.e. to seek to destroy their opposition and establish their rightness, but asking how do we dismantle this without crushing people in the process? What does Indigenous wisdom tell us about the steps that need to be taken in order to build uh, a, a better world that comes next? Well, where do we begin? Um, I think that, you know, Tyson is, is just right on the money when he's talking about the centrality of the mother. When we think about our traditional systems, our traditional systems were uh, matrilineal, matrifocal, matricultural, uh, matriarchal in essence, though, of course, we never used that language. But clan mothers were at the center of our governance structure. And so the chiefs and warriors would bring all of their problems to the clan mothers and the clan mothers would sit 
sit in a circle and allow every voice to be heard so that the, the issue that was being discussed could be seen from every side. And they would put at the center of their consideration an understanding of the sacredness of all life. And so when they would make their decisions, they would make decisions that recognized that all lives were sacred. And so the words that we have in our warrior tradition to describe those who are viewed as warriors um, and, and one, of, you know, one of the core principles of warrior philosophy. So the word I'm thinking of for warrior in our language is ginup, which means the helper. Ginup is the helper who helps and serves the community. That doesn't have any connotation of warfare connected to it. it certainly isn't connected to the taking of life. And the other is a term called samognus, which is a term that recognizes that sacredness of life, but it's a warrior stance where you place your body in the flow of harm that's coming towards you without harming the other, only using enough force that's necessary to keep that harm from coming towards you without purposely striking out to harm the other because you recognize the sacredness of that life. And so when we're thinking about the ways that we do business, even the ways that people wage peace, it's with a mindset of overthrowing, displacing, and supplanting another on top of the throne, if you will, of leadership. And so as we're moving through these movement of movements that are rising up all over the world, we're only going to repeat the same cycle that we've been repeating for millennia if we seek to just overthrow current systems, because then that's going to just create a scenario where those who have been overthrown are going to want to overthrow us. And we have to really be doing the hard work of building relationships, changing hearts and minds, finding what Derek Bell, who is a really preeminent civil rights scholar, called interest convergence points. Those types of things were, were at the core of here in Chwabanakia territory, were at the core of our governance structures. So that when, when we were thinking about how do we move forward, even in the face of a very uh, aggressive and violent enemy, how do we move forward with our hearts intact? How do we move forward in a way that will secure the safety of our children in the future? The only way to do that is to get out of this conquest loop. When Tyson was talking about the snake eating its tail, and uh, I have to say that my name in the language, Wanahamukwasid, is an aspect of the white feathered serpent who chases the sun down into the darkness and back into the dawn sky. It's about bringing the light bringing the truths to the surface from underneath the ground. I resonate with this uh, snake reference in some ways, but in other ways recognize that there's also a polarity to that where there is the, the darkness there that has a uh, other side of that where that is uh, light extinguishing. And so when we think about that snake eating its own tail, it's colonization and capitalism that have no endpoint. You have people within the colonial set who thought that they were safe. Now they recognize that, you know, colonization and capitalism, which colonization is supposed to be a thing of the past, which is very active and alive today, is now uh, cannibalizing its own members. It's cannibalizing itself because there's, there's no endpoint unless we stop it. 
when you think about conquest, it's the same thing. Conquest is a snake eating its own tail. It has no endpoint unless we stop it. And so if we can't really be willing to do the hard work that comes of changing hearts and minds, it's that that spiritual journey of coming up against an obstacle. And rather than just removing it, we come to understand it. We embody it. We uh, recognize all sides of it. And then we let go what doesn't serve us and we integrate the lesson within that. And then we move forward as a bigger, more full being rather than as one who has just uh, thrown off something that was in their way. We've actually, uh, we've actually transcended our differences with it, integrated it and moved on as a, a larger aspect of our, our being. And so that to me is, is at the heart of that concept of moving beyond what I call conquest activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early days of the Trump administration, uh, Ben Carson argued that the, that slaves had come to the US not because they were manacled to the floor of slave ships, but rather because they were immigrants who were coming in pursuit of the American dream. <laughs> what happens to a culture's imagination when it doesn't know its history or when its history is rewritten for it by politicians? What are the impacts on our imagination of not knowing our history? Well, I think that little story was very imaginative. <laughs> I think that um, that completely, yeah, that destroys your entire thesis that the West has no imagination. It's, it's got some good stories. Yeah. I could eat popcorn to that story. That's like a real entertaining. That's a good one. Uh, but, I mean, and I think, well, look, here's the thing. Um, most of... Um, Ah, on this arrow of time, you know, you control the present by controlling the story of the past, by reimagining that story. So we have really bad story, you know, wrong story. You know, stories can heal, stories can kill. And there's a, a lot of killer narratives we have about the past. And the main thing is about this idea of a, you know, that Hobbesian idea of this primitive terrible, brutish past, this, uh, these short, brief lives where scientists actually make things up sometimes. So a lot of science is really good and it's based on good data, but most of the stuff about, you know, what they're calling primitive life and, you know, indigenous life is just, it's bad. Wrong story where, whereby, you know, they can say, ah, um, oh, prior to uh, civilization, 30% of all human deaths were homicides. And I'm like, what, did you check the Neanderthal church records or something for that? How, <laughs> how did you, where's your data set? That's, that's insane. You know, they just kind of, they have really good imagination, I find, <laughs> if, if you could get that narrative right uh, and not reimagine these things but actually look at uh, the real. And look at, um, I mean, nobody could listen to Sherry's story, the story that she's given us, you know, in the brief time that she's had, the picture that she's painted just from sharing what a few words mean and, you know, a few different um, governance structures and things like this. It's impossible for anybody to, (laughs) you know, uh, project onto that, this primitive brutish sort of savage thing but they they still do manage to keep doing it 
And I think it's really important because you can't, um, you can't have the myth of progress unless you have the myth of primitivism. We need this bad story to tell ourselves about the past uh, if we're going to believe for one second this fabulous story about our, uh, our present, which, in which apparently things have never been as good as they are now. Uh, human beings have never lived lives, you know, longer or better or healthier or anything else. Um, humans have never been so intelligent. Humans have never been so wonderful as, as we are now. And that the future is going to be even better. In order to believe that narrative and to burn your entire life working towards it, then you need to believe a um, terrible narrative about the past. And you need to be able to have that thought kick in, that little bug there that says, we can't go back. We can't go back. We can't go backwards. That infects um, everybody who's living under this economic system. I, I even see um, most of my own people uh, thinking and talking like that. Mm. Thank you. Sherry? I, I think that this is uh, very interesting. I just actually... Um contributed a story to a book that just came out called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, which is a book that was essentially written by 60 women all talking about issues related to climate change at this time. And, and the opening of that, the chapter that I wrote, talks about this cartoon image that I used to keep on a wall in my office. I was very young. This was uh, like 25 years ago when I was in my 20s. And the image was of two scientists with clipboards and they were standing over a maze and inside the maze was a mouse who had successfully reached the end and found the cheese. And the caption on that cartoon said, uh, he found the cheese again. He loves it in there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and when you have this view um, from the outside looking in, it's distorted. It's the same as when we're only from the inside looking out, right? Our, our views can't be really measured based on uh, a singular point of reference. And so you know, I kept that cartoon around to remind me that the same type of biased science has been used throughout history to paint this really distorted view of indigenous peoples and other peoples of color and on our ways of being and knowing. And when Tyson talks about we can't go back, I mean, that is that is a evidence of a real assimilation because our peoples are circular. We're cyclical peoples and you can't go forward without, you know, you think about the way that a tire is on a car, uh, you know, and I use that as an example of kind of where we are right now, like the tires going forward and you're riding on it and you're like, all right, man, I'm really moving. And then all of a sudden you start going down and then you hit the pavement and the friction is, you know, put on you and it feels like you're being pulled back before you're thrust forward again. So there's an element of having to go back in order to go forward. We have to reach back in order to go forward. Otherwise we go forward without an understanding that's gained by experience. And so when I think about the illusion that Ben Carson is, is operating under, what I recognize is the human need to feel safe and to have a sense of belonging. There's very little sense that's made when you think about somebody supporting Donald Trump. The only way to explain that is to 
recognize that people associated themselves with bullies because they wanted to feel like they were safe from the bully. And so when you think about Ben Carson, it's this whole history of him as, as a scientist, not recognizing that the science that he has hung his hat on as a, as a medical doctor has been influenced by the biases and the beliefs of the researchers who came before him who were all white men that they carried with them the biases of their time and their predecessors. And so that there's this, this continuation. And, and when we don't tell the truth, then you know we set up scenarios where our whole existence is built upon a lie. And so when you think about Ben Carson's desire to feel safe in the world and to feel like he's on the winning side, uh, all of the beliefs that he has around that have been built upon a lie that has been predicated by our educational systems, our scientific systems, even our religious institutions uh, throughout history. And so I have, I take a little bit of pity on uh, Ben Carson, but I wouldn't want to be involved in anything where he's a decision maker. (laughs) (laughs) Might might I also say though, he's, um, he is, he's responding to a reality. It's, this isn't just a problem of attitudes and he has the wrong story. He, He probably has the right story. The story that shows what is real is that all this bigotry and all this stuff, it's not coming out of a place out of people's hearts. We don't do this naturally as creatures. We don't hate each other. That's not something that we do. But it is coming out of an economic system. And basically that economic system, in order to have a growth-based economic system, particularly one based on land as capital, and that, that was actually started in the United States as a way to trick Native Americans out of their land, you know, that mechanism, and then that was shipped everywhere else in the world. But basically, and you find this at the start of any economics textbook, demand must exceed supply in order for there to be growth. Now, when we're in a growth-based system, it's, it's a recession or a depression if, if the economy stops growing. So it must grow. But in order for that to happen, you must have inequality because there must be more demand than supply. So you think about what that means. There needs to be more people needing the basic things they need to survive than can have that. There needs to be more demand for those things than there is supply of those things. So everything in order to even be priced in this economic system, in order to have price or value, it must be limitable and excludable. So in order to have that, you need to have a caste system. You need to have a caste system where there is at least the bottom 50% who are missing out on most things. That must happen. So people who hate Donald Trump but vote for him anyway, are either people who are in one of the higher castes and would like to see that continue, which, I mean, I don't know. If I was in that cast, I might vote for Trump too. I don't care what he tweets about. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? If I was interested in that. And the other thing is people who hope to be elevated, who still believe in that idea that anybody can get up there into the higher cast if they work hard enough. And you see there's plenty of minority people, people of color who support Trump and everything else, and who strongly believe that because they, as an individual, were able to enter the higher castes, then everybody else could do it as well. And it's just people being lazy or hopeless or whatever that prevents them from rising. 
but basically it's it's right there in any economic textbook we're all purity testing now and looking at each other to see who's racist and see who's not see who can blame and what attitudes we can change but you know the attitudes are not the source of the problem the attitudes are a symptom of the problem and the problem is an economic system a growth based economic system that's grounded in that financial mechanism of land as capital you could remove the bottom part of the stack that one you get rid of land as capital the whole thing's finished um 2020 has been the year that coronavirus has in some ways proved a more effective challenge to businesses usual economics than any of us as activists have ever managed uh, and it's been traumatic and awful but it's also opened up new possibilities and expanded our sense of how rapid change can be possible what's your sense of what we can learn from this crisis what is covid trying to tell us if anything so i guess you know we've long understood as indigenous peoples and i think you'll find this everywhere that there are these um these entities in the landscape that are mm, small or invisible these entities that are part of the landscape and that that enter you and help to transform you they change you because the landscape is constantly changing and so those entities of the landscape they come into you and and keep you in a constant state of evolutionary flux that mirrors the the bioregion that you inhabit So if you go and swim in seawater you're getting um viruses and like little phytoviruses entering your body the entire time you're there that's why it's always good to go to that salt water because it will change you because those viruses go in and they um they're like a computer virus you know they um they they mess with your DNA and they help you to mutate and change and come into alignment with the landscape And look, I guess when you completely throw a landscape into chaos and it is changing changing so quickly, then the kind of viruses that we're seeing now, these ones are being thrown up by the creative engine of the landscape. So you really it's just a comorbidity uh with sick country with sick land. You know, you're going to get these comorbidities, the kinds of viruses that get thrown up that need to change you. in order to bring you into balance with the land are going to uh demand more and more drastic changes uh, that may include the ending of your life you know i i think that this question of what corona is teaching us is a huge question that we could spend a whole show talking about i um just co-edited a book called the corona transmissions alternatives for engaging with covid-19 from the physical to the metaphysical with Richard Grossinger and Kathy Glass which just came out and one of the things that I think covid is teaching us is what we can do without them. There are so many things that we thought we could never do without that we are having to do without now. Also teaching us the value of connectivity. And the lessons that we're learning from this time are introductory lessons. It's the most basic learning of understanding and recognizing the letters in an alphabet the components of speech that we're learning once again this language of life that we have as human beings largely forgotten now we're we're in this introductory stage where what's being taught to us by corona is something that's very very basic our prophecies here in this territory and in other parts of the world as well tell us that this is only the beginning 
that if we don't begin to radically change the way that we're living, you know, one of the 1 million species that's facing extinction right now is human beings. If we don't radically change our way of being, we're going to exit the planet. You know, we're not going to be able to continue to exist here. And so this is just the beginning of the rest of life communicating with us in a language that we have forgotten that we have become a danger to the rest of the living beings on earth. And that if we don't change our ways, we're going to we're going to be removed from the planet. So hopefully people are good linguistic students and they take this lesson to heart and and really start thinking about the deeper question of what is Corona teaching them. The people that I know that I'm connected with uh, are running the gamut from real deep exploration of that question to bankrupting type online consumption to try to fill the gap that they're feeling in relation to the lack of distractions that they've been able to put into their life to prevent them from actually connecting with life. And so Corona is teaching us to once again, have a connection with life by introducing us to this language that we as human beings have walked away from in our delusion this mass illusion, mass delusional thinking that we are somehow superior to the rest of the beings within creation. And we're being reminded uh, of that and hopefully humbled to some degree that this virus that has come to us from the animals can lay us low. And then recognizing that, that this is only a fraction of how impacted we could be from what can come to us from, from the natural world. Well, it's also, it's directing our attention to the micro when we look at things like uh, climate change, because everybody's always looking for the big things, the tornadoes and the tsunamis and all these, they're looking for the big impacts, the big droughts, the big floods, all of these things. But the most dangerous thing about climate change is what happens at the micro. It's um, happens with bacteria, but also like just with molds and fungus and I mean, just as a woodcarver in Australia over the last 10, 15 years, I have noticed that increasingly, you know, more and more tree, it might be, might have been one in a hundred trees before you might cut open and it, it was rotten on the inside. It would have a mold through it, you know, or a bacterium through it. But now it's, you know, half the trees I cut into have that. And it's not anything I've heard anybody talk about yet but it's something that i've been noticing quite a bit and with increasing frequency now so i think um as the temperatures rise even a bit you're going to find more and more of this and uh, if you can imagine the knock-on effects of that of entire forests just crumbling to things like that so yeah I, i think it's the small things it's the microscopic that that is going to bring the most danger and i guess corona might be directing our attention towards that as well Wow, thank you both so much. This has been such a fantastic discussion. We could go on for hours, um, but uh, I should draw things to a close, sadly, and to thank you both so, so much for joining me today. It's been it's been a, an honour to have you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So my thanks to you for listening and also to Ben Adicott for theme music and production and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.